Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. These are coming from the TDIHC vault, so you'll also hear two hosts. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and it's September 2nd. The Great Fire of London began on this day in 1666. Fires were not at all unusual in London in the 17th century. Most of the buildings were made out of wood, and the streets tended to be very narrow, with the buildings built very close together. So once a fire did start, it tended to spread really quickly. The summer of 1666, though, was really primed for some kind of disaster. The summer had been very long and hot and dry. So all of those wooden buildings that were all so tightly built together were particularly dry. The city also didn't have a lot of water on hand to fight a fire if one happened. People were aware of the danger, but frankly, they had other things on their minds. The Great Plague of London had killed tens of thousands of people over the previous year. This fire started in the home of the King's Baker in Pudding Lane near London Bridge. The family managed to escape, but their maid was too scared to leave and she died. The fire spread so quickly from there. It started at about 2 a.m. and by dawn, the London Bridge was on fire. The London Bridge was not just a bridge. It also had buildings built on it. And in a previous fire in 1632, some of these buildings had been torn down to create a firebreak. It's a pretty typical way of fighting a fire in London at the time. You would just destroy the buildings that were in the fire's path so it wouldn't have any fuel anymore. It would have nowhere to go. The fact that some of the buildings on London Bridge had been destroyed to stop a fire in 1632 also stopped the fire in 1666. So the fire could not get across the London Bridge, but it did continue to spread west into London, aided by heavy winds. The mayor hesitated about making more firebreaks because obviously it's very expensive to rebuild deliberately torn down buildings after the fire is over. King Charles II finally ordered the destruction of any buildings that needed to be destroyed to create a firebreak, but by then it was just too late. The fire was absolutely out of control. It burned for days and was finally extinguished on September 5th. Some flames broke out again after that, though, at Temple Church, and the Duke of York immediately had several buildings nearby blown up to stop the spread. A massive part of London was destroyed in this fire, including most of the civic buildings. Nearly 90 parish churches were destroyed and more than 10,000 homes. There are also four officially reported deaths. There may have been many more. But considering how big the fire was, it seems as though the death toll was surprisingly low. When the city was rebuilt, a lot of the streets were widened, and many of the houses were made of brick instead of wood. An investigation also followed this fire. A lot of people believed it had been some kind of a plot by a foreign power, or a plot by Catholics. So this led to an increased anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic hostility. Watchmaker Robert Hubert confessed starting the fire and was executed. 
But his testimony was really erratic. It kept changing. And after his execution, his colleagues said there was no way he could have done it because he was at sea when the fire started. It's completely unknown why he confessed to starting this fire that he definitely did not start. You can learn more about this in the May 30th, 2011 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class, History's Unforgettable Fires. You can also subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a massacre that followed a war. Hello, welcome to This Day in History Class, where we dust off a little piece of history every day. The day was September 2nd, 1885. White miners murdered 28 Chinese miners in Rock Springs, Wyoming, after a dispute over the location where they were working. Anti-Chinese sentiment was high in the U.S. at the time, with the Rock Springs Massacre occurring just three years after the Chinese Exclusion Act put a 10-year moratorium on Chinese labor immigration. Though the Rock Springs Massacre was not the only instance of anti-Chinese violence in this climate, it was one of the more brutal occurrences. Chinese miners had been in the United States at least since the California Gold Rush in 1849. Even though the work they were doing, like farming and building railroads, was physically demanding, difficult, and dangerous, they stayed because they could make much more money in the U.S. than they could in China. And because they kept their expenses low, they often took low-paying jobs white workers began to view Chinese immigrants as competitors who were taking their jobs, and they made it clear that the Chinese were not welcome. Violence against Chinese people was not uncommon in California, Arizona, and Nevada. But even though Congress limited Chinese immigration into the United States, Chinese people continued to work in the Western U.S. The railroad company Union Pacific had coal mines across Wyoming that provided the fuel for trains. When it ran into financial trouble and needed to save money, the company cut miners' pay. On top of this, Union Pacific required workers to shop for food, clothes, and tools at the company's stores so it could pocket more money. The company's miners went on strikes against these working conditions, and they tried to unionize. But the company did not concede to the strikers' demands and even resorted to firing strikers and hiring people who were more compliant. After one 1875 strike, Union Pacific hired Chinese miners who were willing to work for low wages. By 1885, there were about 600 Chinese miners and 300 white miners working at the coal mine in Rock Springs, Wyoming. The white miners, largely Scandinavian, Welsh, and English immigrants, lived in downtown Rock Springs. The Chinese miners lived in what the white miners called Chinatown. Though the two groups worked side by side, they maintained their own cultures and languages. And white workers were still unhappy with their pay, which remained low. So they joined a union called the Knights of Labor, where they could voice their grievances. 
Many white miners wanted to send the Chinese out of Wyoming territory. Threats and violence against Chinese workers in Wyoming were an issue. This tension was the backdrop for a fight that broke out between Chinese and white miners in the number six mine in Rock Springs on the morning of September 2nd, 1885. It was a high yield mine and getting a good part of the mine was important for miners since they were paid by the ton. One Chinese miner was hit in the head with a pick and died in the fight. A foreman broke up the violence, but the white miners escalated the fight, getting weapons and gathering in the Knights of Labor Hall. As miners from other mines joined the commotion and it became clear that violence was imminent, saloons closed for the day. By that afternoon, between 100 and 150 armed white men, mainly miners and railroad workers, had assembled near the number six mine. Women and children joined them. The mob surrounded Chinatown. The mob shot and killed Chinese people and looted and burned their houses. They went to their Union Pacific bosses and demanded they leave town. Territorial Governor Francis E. Warren called for federal troops and told Union Pacific to run a slow train that would pick up stranded Chinese miners and give them food, water, and blankets. Many Chinese people who had been threatened or faced violence were sent to Evanston, west of Rock Springs. When some of the Chinese workers requested railroad tickets out of Wyoming and the back pay they were owed, the company refused. Union Pacific even refused when white residents in Evanston requested the Chinese be paid off so they could leave Wyoming. On September 9th, the Chinese people in Evanston were put on boxcars and told they were headed to safety in San Francisco. Instead, they were taken back to Rock Springs so they could go back to work. Of course, they met more antagonism from white miners who blocked them from entering the mines and many Chinese people left Rock Springs. But Union Pacific declared that they would fire anyone who was not back to work by the 21st. And so the miners went back to work. 16 white miners were arrested and released on bail. People cheered for them upon their release. Union Pacific fired some of the white miners who took part in the massacre but no one was convicted of robbery, rioting, arson, or murder. In the end, 28 Chinese people were killed, 15 were wounded, and all 79 of the shacks and houses in Rock Springs, Chinatown were looted and burned. Damages were estimated at about $150,000, which is the equivalent of about $4 million today. And Congress ended up compensating the miners for their loss. Federal troops built Camp Pilot Butte between downtown Rock Springs and Chinatown to prevent further violence, and they stayed there until the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. We'd love it if you left us a comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at T-D-I-H-C Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back tomorrow for more delicious morsels of history.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.